Mark writes, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is God's word to us this morning. We're doing the hymn after the sermon. Oh, after? Yep. <laughs> Sorry. So you've noticed, uh, like I said, that we've circled back to this passage in Mark a few times already. And in slowing down, we, we really get the sense of what is going on here that goes by so quickly that otherwise we would miss it. In just these seven verses, consider what happens. Jesus goes to see his cousin John at the Jordan. He's baptized. The Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. God speaks from heaven. The Spirit pushes him into the wilderness. Jesus fasts. Satan tempts him. He has angels attending him. John goes to prison. Jesus goes to Galilee. Jesus starts preaching, inaugurating his, his formal ministry, and he calls people to repentance as, as he announces that the kingdom of God has come. That's a lot to pack into just a few short sentences. So ups and downs, highs and lows, you know, if you were to break each one of those down, you could kind of rate them as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And it makes me think of the genre of comedy known as the good news, bad news jokes. Are you familiar with these? On the TV show, Hee Haw. How many of you are old enough to remember Hee Haw? Okay. You know Hee Haw? Oh, yeah. Good for you. All right. Education. Yeah, that's the, that's the glory of cable now, even though old shows can be reintroduced, right? Well, uh, comedian Archie Campbell had this reoccurring sketch that he did as the barber, and as he would cut hair, he would tell stories. Here's an example. He says, oh, I guess you heard about my, my terrible misfortune. No, what happened? Yeah, my great uncle died. Oh, that's bad. No, that's good. Well, how come? Well, when he died, he left me $50,000. Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. Well, how come? When the internal revenue got a hold of it, all I had left was $25,000. Oh, that's bad. No, that's good. How come? Well, it was enough that I, I bought me an airplane and I learned to fly. Well, that's good. No, that's bad. I was flying upside down the other day and I fell out of the thing. Well, that's bad. No, that's good. When I looked down underneath, there was this great big old haystack. Well, that's good. 
No, that's bad. As I got a little closer, I saw a pitchfork aimed right at me. Well, that's bad. No, that's good. I missed the pitchfork. Well, that's good. No, that's bad. How come? I missed the haystack, too. <laughs> well, we laugh because this sort of humor does sort of remind us of our own experiences. And we see our life experience echoed also in Scripture when and if we look. Just when our situation seems hopeless, something good happens. And when we're still <laughs> rejoicing over our good fortune, catastrophe hits or trial comes and tests our faith. What might not be obvious at first when we speed through these first few verses in Mark's Gospel is the role that Jesus is taking on, not just for us, but for God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Jesus is, is living out in a way and in redeeming much of the good news, bad news history of the Jewish people. So before we jump too far ahead, we should, we should consider that relationship because it's intentional. Our Old Testament lesson today that Bradley kindly read for us reminds us of the unique relationship God established with his creation. We all live under the promise of God's provision. The rainbow in the heavens each time it rains is a reminder that God loves us. That loving relationship is complicated during times of trial or testing. Jesus had, or Israel had many of these times of testing and none more significant than the 40 years in the wilderness between the slavery of Egypt and the freedom of the promised land. Unfortunately, we don't have to guess what that time of testing was all about what the greater meaning was. Because God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. Now this is about Israel and their time in the wilderness. And Moses says in that, that passage in Deuteronomy, he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to, to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor, nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the purpose of Israel's wilderness experience was, was threefold. God was trying to teach them humility, faithfulness, and dependence. Humility, faithfulness, and dependence. You know, there's 40 years of wandering in the desert. All those that, that had doubted God's original provision that he would take them into the promised land, so the reason they were wandering for 40 years is so that they would die in the desert. And then a new generation would enter into the promised land, with a few exceptions. They experienced hunger, and they were fed by manna, which literally means, what is it? They had no idea God was doing such a new thing that they didn't have a word to cover what God's provision was. So this, what is it, manna bread, lasted as long as it needed to last. He was testing their faithfulness to see what was in their hearts. If, if 
God is sort of asking, do you, do you have what it takes to even want to obey my commands? And then dependence, understanding the need to 100% rely on the word or the character of God, not on anything else. Now, similarly, in the passage of Scripture we're looking at today, the timing and the manner of Jesus' temptation tells us something of the purpose of that testing. So if the, the purpose of Israel's testing was that they would learn humility, faithfulness, and dependence, there's a reason for Jesus' period of time in the wilderness, other than just sort of play-acting and living out in 40 days what Israel had gone through in 40 years. Consider verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Next verse, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Now the Spirit only did this after first descending upon him as a dove. So, so that's nice, but there's that good news, right? Of the Spirit's anointing, kind of testifying to who Jesus is, and then right out into the wilderness. And then in verse 13, we get the 40 days being tempted by Satan, wild animals are around Jesus, and angels attend him. So the timing. What is it about the timing? Well, Jesus' time in the wilderness takes place right after God the Father declares that Jesus is his son. So God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. I believe this is because the Jesus' time in the wilderness is to, to test that relationship between the Father and the Son. Now surely Jesus had grown up understanding the unique relationship as God's only begotten Son. Uh, I'm sure that Joseph and Mary kind of filled him in on the unique circumstances of, of his conception and birth and early years. But think about the impact that would have had on Jesus growing up. Here he's about 30 years old. He knows all this. He knows he's, he's unique among all creation. He can see in the word a reflection of who he is, but then to hear an audible voice from heaven. I can't imagine the impact that that would have had on his heart, just an, an affirmation. Yes, I am your son, God, and God, audibly speaking, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. And he hears this voice after an act of obedience in um, in Mark's gospel, this all happens very quickly. In Matthew's, we, we hear that, that at first John's like, hey, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And that Jesus says, well, let's do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And there's some argument about what that means exactly. What, what I take it to mean, or at least the, the bulk of the meaning there, is that, that Jesus is saying, let's make it clear what it means to be in right relationship with God the Father. And so, yes, technically I don't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins because we know Jesus was sinless. But it was another thing that affirmed the connection that Jesus had with his Father. 
And baptism for us as Christians is a sign and seal that we are made by God, or made right by this act of baptism, made right by faith in Jesus Christ. And to be right with God and that our sin is no longer counted against us. And that's a wonderful thing. But that truth is more about the kind of legal or judicial side of things. Like, all right, phew, now my sin is taken care of. I'm, I'm no longer under condemnation. But the, the truth that is equally, if not more important than that, is that in baptism, we, we experience a relational truth that we are being brought into God's family. Right? That's why... In, in most Christian churches, baptism isn't something that you can do privately on your own. It needs to be in the context of a larger worship service, that, that the congregation has a part in that, that they, they also answer questions of commitment to the child or to the individual that's being baptized. It's not, a, it's not an individual's relationship with God, and that's it. It's about coming into God's family. The community of faith. Yes, God becomes our Father, and from heaven, in a sense, we kind of claim that truth for ourselves as well. That that this is this is my daughter, this is my son, my precious child. In in her or in him, in you. Am I well pleased? That's what God is saying when we respond in faith and are baptized. So right after Jesus is, is affirmed in this relationship with God the Father, he's pushed out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Wilderness. Wild. Untamed. Dangerous, maybe. Peaceful. What images come to mind when you hear the term wilderness? Is it good news or bad news to be in the wilderness? What do you think? Bad news. Bad news? Yeah. Okay, bad news to be in the wilderness? 40 days is not going to be enough. 40 days? Yeah, maybe the length of time that you're in the wilderness? All right. Um, there's. Having spending part of my time still in Montana, there's a lot of people that you say wilderness to, but that's why they moved to Montana. So they're like, good news that I'm in the wilderness. We lived at 10,300 feet in the mountains of Colorado. They had to get through Arapahoe National Forest. There was nothing to go back to when they were washing dishes and saying, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I'm there. Um, you learn to be very wary, yeah. but the beauty and tranquility of living in the wilderness so it really does depend on the context and your familiarity perhaps with with your surroundings the observation that I'd like to make this morning is or this afternoon I'm probably going to keep doing that <laughs> is is that the wilderness is morally neutral we have in this passage for instance we've got Jesus we've got wild animals we've got Satan we have angels all in the wilderness now, wilderness is, is um, it's sort of a limiting experience if you're in the wilderness. 
its existence stripped away of all the, the modern trappings of civilization, which often insulate us from God. We're alone with ourselves, we're, we're alone with God in this wilderness, and the wilderness reveals our character, and if we're wise, we, we give God the opportunity in our wilderness experiences to, to continue to build our character. Now, Jesus has this beautiful, affirming moment with his Heavenly Father, and then he's, he's abruptly pushed out into the wilderness. That, that word that's used for wilderness is, is uh, from Eremos, it's Eremon, and it, it just meant uh, a deserted place. And it's used throughout scripture to, to talk about a place that's not, um, not uninhabitable, but isn't inhabited by people. So not completely desolate. We're not talking like Sahara desert. Maybe more like kind of our sagebrush desert that we have around here, where you, you might see a wild animal, you might see a cougar, you might see a, uh, you might see a coyote, right? You might see somebody's husky that's gotten this. There will be, there'll be birds, there'll be animals, there might be the occasional oasis. But it's still, it's wilderness in the sense that its existence stripped down. No houses, no entertainment, nothing to distract. And in that, that lack of population, that lack of being settled, causes some of us in those wilderness experiences to be really unsettled, because we don't like to be alone with our thoughts. That, that idea of introspection and time alone with God um, is, is hard, because we're used to all the distractions and the noise. So this timing, like I said, right after the Father affirms Jesus's relationship with, with him as the Son, and, and the manner of him being pushed out into the wilderness to, to be away from all other obstacles or distractions, I think gives us the purpose behind this time of testing and trial. God the Father wants Jesus to, to be solidified in that relationship with the Father. And I think the same would be true for us. That God wants us to be solid in our identity. Now the temptation that we have is to often doubt the relationship that we have with God the Father because the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Could it be instead that, that when we feel pushed by the Spirit into our own wilderness experiences, our own desolate places, that it's not a punishment, that it's not bad news, but it's, it's a desire by God that, that we draw closer to the Lord and that the Lord wants to draw closer to us. Jesus' example follows Israel's. And for Israel, it was about establishing humility, faithfulness, and dependence. Humility, faithfulness, and dependence. Now, in Mark's gospel, we don't have the full context of Jesus' temptation. We get that from 
the other Gospels. But um, if we look there, the depictions of Jesus' temptation, like in Matthew's account, we see he's tempted to turn stones into bread, kind of like the, the manna thing, right? Testing his dependence. Are you going to depend on God your Father to sustain you in this wilderness experience? Are you, you going to let Satan talk you into turning stones into bread? Or throw yourself down from the temple. You know, a big showy display of who you are. You know, angels are gonna swoop down and keep you from striking your, your foot on a stone. Testing Jesus' humility. Is he gonna be a show-off with this relationship that he has with God? And, and the temptation of ruling over the nations by, by just doing a simple thing, bowing down to Satan. Test. Jesus' faithfulness. He says, worship God and serve him only. Even God the Son says, no, I'm not going to test God the Father in that way. So Jesus is walking through the experience of the Jewish people. In 40 days, that experience that, well, that would redeem and give greater meaning to that story of Israel and their 40 years in the wilderness. Before I close, though, I want to probably touch on, you know, there's kind of sacred cows in Scripture that sometimes preachers or teachers don't, don't kick because, because they open up a Pandora's box of all sorts of questions. If we're honest, have you ever looked at this passage and said, all right, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, but so what? It's Jesus. It's God's Son. We already know how this story ends. We know who Jesus was. He was sinless. He's not going to sin. He's not going to give in to temptation. So this is all just sort of, I don't know, play out. Have any of you, if you're honest, thought that even just a little bit? I don't. I know I did. Growing up, I was like, all right, so what? I mean, especially as a teenager when I was learning these passages the first time, teenagers are well acquainted with temptation. Like, <laughs> flood of hormones going through our bodies were just not... We're not in control of ourselves most of the time, right? In that, that period of our lives. It's a miracle any of us makes it through our youth. But what's awesome about being part of a tradition of faith is that we have other people that have wrestled with these questions. So if we have these questions, we can, we can kind of research them. We can, we can say how clearly other people must have wrestled with this. What have they thought? And one of my favorite authors in Christian tradition is C.S. Lewis. Familiar with C.S. Lewis? He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but also a lot of books around different areas of apologetics. And one of his best is called Mere Christianity. And by mere, he means just kind of basics, like the fundamentals, the simplest forms of Christianity. And in that, he addresses this issue of Jesus' temptation. And temptation in general. And I can't possibly improve upon his, his explanation, so I'm just going to read it to you. He says, No man or woman knows how bad he or she is until they've tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, 
You find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. And a man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Have you thought about that? Anybody here ever been called like a goody two-shoes or, or, or somebody, you know, that it has, because you have higher moral standards than somebody else, you're kind of looked down and going, oh, you couldn't possibly understand real life or what, what we go through, right? You live a sheltered life, your little Christian bubble. Nonsense. Okay? That's what he's saying. Let me repeat. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight against it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Hmm. Now Jesus, by bearing under the weight of temptation to sin, yet remaining sinless, is the only human being to fully understand what temptation truly means, what it is, how strong its pull is. Now here's what it means for us, the application part of the sermon. It's only when you or I attempt obedience that we risk true temptation. It is then that you put a bullseye on your back, in a sense, and draw the attention of Satan. Consider Jesus. He lived in relative obscurity for 30 years up in Nazareth. If he stays in Nazareth as a carpenter, no one knows about him. But in stepping out and meeting John at the Jordan, he affirms his identity, his position, and his purpose in God's plan. When you step into your rightful identity as God's beloved daughter or son, and you affirm your purpose as one who is telling others about the coming kingdom of God and, that, and, and the need that others have to be in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that is when you and I will face temptation, testing, and those wilderness experiences that seek to strip us down to the bare essentials of our existence. What are those essentials? I am a child of God. I am loved. God will take care of me. You are a child of God. Identity. You are loved. Purpose. God will take care of you. Provision. Identity, purpose, and provision. Every temptation is going to come at one or more of those truths because Satan desperately wants you to doubt your relationship with God. If Satan can get you to define yourself as anything less than God's beloved son or daughter, he knows he's just rendered you ineffective for the kingdom. Your position doesn't change. You're, you're just as much a child of God as you ever were, you just won't act like it. 
You'll fuss and you'll fret and you'll focus on all the wrong things. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reads, and this is from the New Living Translation, the temptations in your life are no different than what anyone else has experienced and God is faithful. God is not going to allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. But when you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. If we know that Satan is going to tempt us when we step into our identity, purpose, and the provision that God has given us, well then, then we can, if we know how we're going to be attacked, then we can prepare. We can combat it by reinforcing the truths that we know are under attack. We can fortify these truths that, that we are God's children, that we are loved, and that God will take care of us. Where are you at today? Where are you at? Are you tempted to doubt that you are God's beloved child? Love completely, no matter what comes, no matter what testing or wilderness experience you're, you have and are living through right now? Do you doubt that God is going to take care of you? Now, someone hearing this message might have those doubts because they cannot say honestly that they have committed their life to God through Jesus and sought to be obedient to, to God's call on their life by being baptized into the family. If so, reach out to me. If you're viewing this or listening to this later, reach out to, to me or someone on the leadership team and we can talk about it seeing how we can build you up, affirm that relationship with Jesus through confession of faith and baptism. But I suspect many more are, are hearing this message and are just, just trying to hold firm to God's promises in the midst of testing or temptation. You may suspect that your failures or your shortcomings suggest that God has turned his back on you. Or maybe once. Let me encourage you as we close. Paul writes two letters in the New Testament to young Timothy. In the second letter, in the second chapter, verses 11 through 13, I want to quote from the Living Bible. He encourages him in the work of discipleship and living for Jesus in the midst of troubling times and discouraging circumstances. Does that sound like it could be today? Troubling times, discouraging circumstances. And Paul himself was writing from jail, after all, being jailed for his faith. He writes to Timothy and says, I am comforted by this truth, that when we suffer and die for Christ, it only means that we begin living with him in heaven. And if we think that our present service for him is hard, just remember that someday we're going to sit with him and we're going to rule with him. But if we give up when we suffer and we turn against the Christ, it's not that he wants to, but, but he has to turn from us. Even when we are too weak to have any faith left, he remains faithful to us and will help us. For he cannot disown those who are part of himself. And, we, and he will always carry out his promises to us. Let me read that last verse because I kind of messed it up a little bit. One more time. Even when we are too weak to have any faith left, 
He remains faithful to us and will help us, for he cannot disown us who are part of himself. And he will always carry out his promises to us. Let us pray. God, for those listening that cannot say with assurance that they have made a decision to follow Jesus and accept his sacrifice for